All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of The Floor is Rising. And today we're going to talk about price manipulation in the NFT market. Now, this is a controversial topic, but from my speaking with other people in the crypto industry, this is probably one of the most popular reasons given as to why people don't want to get into NFTs because they feel that it is a manipulated market. And I feel like there's actually not much talk about this because the people who try to promote NFTs either cannot or don't want to uh, talk about this issue because they feel like it would probably damage the NFT market if if they talked about it or or they just uh, don't collect enough NFTs to know anything about this. Everyone knows that the highest NFT sale in history is Medicovan's purchase of Beeple's for the first 5,000 days, which was a world record NFT sale at around the 70 million US dollar mark. But not many people know is that prior to that purchase, in an event slash auction a few months prior, Medicovan bought 20 Beeple one-of-ones using a various series of sort of proxy bidders, dummy bidders, uh, and basically acquired nearly every single one-of-one edition of Beeple at this event and you know, essentially formed the B20 fund with that purchase at the time. I would kind of call that, in the scheme of things, price manipulation, because if that didn't happen, would he have then sort of spent $70 million a few weeks later on that 5,000 days of, of Vipul? And there obviously was a strategic plan to acquire Beeple works and acquire them strategically in order to raise the value of both his holdings and his DAO's holdings. And this is by no means an isolated event in the NFT world. This happens either explicitly or implicitly to a large extent in in a lot of uh, NFT sales and collections. What I can say so far from my observation is that this idea of collusion and price fixing has happened equally in, in the NFT space. And I think part of that maybe is that obviously it's a little bit more anonymous or pseudonymous. And it's really hard to do kind of the due diligence on artists and collectors that traditionally is done, I would say, quite manually in the traditional art world. So to come back to the the gatekeeping thing, I think that's one of the advantages of that, which is that when done properly, the gatekeeping does kind of filter out kind of unsavory actors. Galleries, especially the very prominent ones, they tend to choose their collectors. I mean, you might think that the collectors with the most money or, you know, the the ones, oh, I'll buy the whole show, for example. But sometimes these collectors are rebuffed by the galleries because they would rather place a work from a hot, you know, fast rising artist with, say, a smaller museum or institution, because they understand that, you know, for the long-term career prospects of the artists, it's not good if one or a cartel of collectors are the only ones that have access to the work, because the artists gains cachet and traction by being exhibited in a, in a variety of contexts. So they have, there are many artists that initially were entirely supported by a very small group of private collectors, individual collectors. But as this artist matures, you know, they need kind of that exposure to 
you know, for example, museum shows, art fairs, kind of more, um, I wouldn't say non-profit oriented context, but obviously there are cases where, you know, they're shown at events where the audience is a more general one. And then one of the phenomena that they were keen to avoid is the artists whose prices rise too quickly, too fast, right? Because then it might just collapse when these collectors just disappear because there isn't a wide consensus about what the artist is worth. And once these private individual people disappear, the artist's price collapses at the next auction and then that's it there's no way to revive that so yeah obviously that's one of the downsides of the price fixing that in the traditional world a lot of galleries that were managing the careers of artists were keen to avoid so let's give an example the most famous nft collectible in the world is cryptopunks right now the cryptopunks floor plurice went from about just over one ETH to about six ETH during a period of time in around July to September, October 2020. And I would contend that one of the the reasonings for that huge price increase is an event where the Rarible platform opened and Rarible incentivized the usages platform through the distribution of the Rarity token for both buyers and sellers. So, you know, the more you sold or bought from that platform, the more Rarity token you received. And so naturally what happens when that kind of incentivization happens is people start buying and selling a ton of stuff and, and they try to do it in bigger and bigger volumes. And so what you saw is a huge amount of CryptoPunk sales happening on the Rari platform, which you know, never happened before or since <laughs> that sort of event. And because there was so much trading going on, the, the price of CryptoPunks just rocketed up for that period of time. And it was worthwhile for people to do because the amount of Rari tokens they received for those sales was more than compensated for any loss of opportunity or whatever it is that that happened. Now, I would definitely call that price manipulation to a certain extent, but it's not sort of the classic, here we're going to dump worthless works on people, but it was was kind of a strategic transaction that happened to take advantage of certain events that happened at that time. And, And, you know, another example from CryptoPunks is, for example, recently, one of the more famous sort of people who bought into the CryptoPunks at the time. One was Daryl Morey, who is currently the president of basketball operations at the Philadelphia 76ers. And the other one is Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a very famous YouTube star. And both of them, I would say, engaged either implicitly, most likely implicitly, in a, in a, in a form of sort of price manipulation. So Daryl Morey bought a bunch of punks, and, and, and the punks that he bought had the headband trick because he's a basketball person and, and he bought headbands because that, that you know, directly relates to sort of basketball. And what I noticed soon after is that after he made those purchases and those purchases became well-known is that the price of headband punks went up by disclosing you know, his purchases and, and, and what he bought. The value of that particular attribute rose. Now, Gary Vaynerchuk also bought a lot of punks, way more than Daramari did, and he bought the attribute cap. You know, it was a it was a purple cap, and he bought a lot of uh, caps. The impact of sort of cap prices after that was revealed. It definitely didn't rise uh, as much as headband prices rose. <laughs>
the pool of collectors that were active in the market for contemporary, so you know, living artists was extremely small. And it was kind of the maybe the starting in the early '90s where you had an explosion of like art events like biennales. You had you know more galleries catering to the rising middle class and. This awareness that contemporary art was something of a status symbol that could be collected by, you know, wealthy individuals. I think that was the key thing to remember with contemporary art, which is that these were not artists that were in the history books or art history books by any means. They were just, you know, renting this rat-infested loft in Soho <laughs> when it was still cheap in New York, unbelievably, and you know, making works that were often traded among artists for, you know, you would trade works rather than sell them because they couldn't sell them. Let's not forget, these were people like Yayoi Kusama, like Donald Judd, who now have foundations and, and museum shows. So the other thing that in terms of the influence of collectors and whether or not that's A, unavoidable and B, even a bad thing, I think that, you know, bearing in mind that traditionally collectors were a small contingent and a known quantity. So now you have all these players that are entering the market and they have the money. They're often pseudonymous and we don't even have any idea who they are, but they're extremely active. And I think that's key because in the traditional art world, the gatekeeping mechanism was all about you need to know who the collectors are because at some future point in time, when the Guggenheim decides to have a retrospective of that artist and say that, you know, 50% of the work is held by in private hands. And if you have no idea who has the most important works that you can loan from, you have no show. And that's one of the things that figures into the consciousness, I think, of the dealer gatekeepers that, you know, I was talking about earlier, which is that there's some kind of peace of mind associated with the fact that your collectors are so-called respectable members of society who aren't just going to flip at the next auction and disappear and then move on to the next, maybe in 20, 30 years, are the type of people that will make a donation to a prominent museum. So that's the kind of price fixing, I think, that is appreciated. Or that's the kind of collusion that I think most people would agree is beneficial for all players in the sense that it does build sustainable long-term career for the artist, for the dealer. And of course, the question is like, well, do we want these legacy structures to be replicated? Is there a way that they're going to be replicated maybe in a different form? So, you know, the same kind of gatekeeping mechanisms, but maybe without the kind of clubby relationships that I think are the norm in the traditional art world. There's definitely a contingent of people a large contingent of people who are trying to replicate the sort of the mechanics and the dynamics of the traditional art world and trying to apply it to NFTs, right? Whether it be gatekeeping, I mean, that's, that's basically the business model of all the platforms, right? To become a gatekeeper, to become an influential gatekeeper. Because if they achieve that kind of MoMA kind of a status, then essentially they have a moat, right? That they can brag to the investors <laughs> that they are the gatekeeper in NFT art. And then you have individuals who try to achieve some sort of notoriety and influence on, on social media so that they themselves have become that curator, right? Become that influential curator so that, you know, either they can do special deals or that they, they become tastemakers. Therefore, they have the power to offload the works that they've purchased for a lower price, for a higher price. I mean, the, there's strong incentives to recreate all of these traditional art structures in an empty world. And, you know, my personal opinion is that to a certain extent, they will be recreated. 
because the incentive structures are so strong that it's impossible to avoid to some extent in the future, whether it's months, whether it's years, whatever it is. I mean, to a certain extent, those structures will be replicated. You know, the NYC Soho, right, where there was sort of a spontaneous collective of artists who all sort of appeared in that place in that time where essentially it was they sort of built themselves up in the beginning and only later on did the big money sort of come in and and, and, you know make them into sort of the celebrities and the icons that they are now but the thing is you know how easy is that to replicate you know can you know now that sort of the nyc so her price the rental prices are so high you know are people moving to what like a like detroit are they moving to (laughs) are they moving to like a lower rent place like how easy is that to do i think it's very difficult right i mean that kind of serendipity is is very difficult to replicate in the physical world but in the digital world that's actually quite easy right (laughs) if the prices on you know super rare or the prices on nifty gateway become too high it's actually quite easy for you know a hen or a rareable or or any of the new platforms if CryptoPunk prices get too high then you know board it yacht club can come along and, and sort of try to do something new so in that sense the barriers to entry to create that kind of new sort of vibe new collective is very low and there will always be that sort of check against sort of the gatekeepers and i think my prediction is that that's what will happen you know there will be the gatekeepers you know currently that's sort of nifty gateway super rare sort of the, the platforms itself are super high prices, but there will always be that demand for people to build a separate community from scratch and, and, and try to elevate that community over time. In the traditional art world, you have, you know, you have this thing called the art calendar, which is basically from every month, there's like this auction and that, you know, Biennale and that art fair and that festival and stuff like that. So a lot of the secondary market activity, especially, I think, is occurs like clockwork. And, there, you know, it's both in terms of the actual sale as well as the run up to that sale where they have previews and, you know, People basically express interest in certain work. On the auction side, they're already kind of like scouting for potential buyers. So to the extent that in many cases, you read about how a show or an auction sold out basically before it even occurs. And so they've actually kind of identified, cherry-picked the ideal collector or the ideal buyer. And so, I mean, that's obviously all part of the so-called market fixing and the price fixing because you're basically determining the market in advance for an event that hasn't happened yet. And now, of course, you're seeing that, you know, despite the fact that a lot of NFT actors are behaving in a similar way, there is still a little bit of a wild card in the game in the sense of potential market movers that, you know, aren't known quantities. And then, you know, they can emerge from parts of the world that we hadn't banked on previously. So there is a little bit more, I I wouldn't call it randomness. I think there's a little bit more of expectations that might be upset or there are more surprises basically, potentially. But the mechanisms are similar. I think anyone that decides to try and speed things along or take a natural course of things and, and accelerate that is a course of action that's open to anyone. And it doesn't matter whether they're an established collector who's known, or if they're an unknown potential future influencer actor from less prominent part of the world. In fact, I think that, you know, even in the traditional art world, you're seeing that 
galleries and auctions are routinely surprised because new buyers from so-called you know, less prone parts of the world show up every single auction, every spring, every fall. I mean, the way I see it, and, and this is probably to, to just sum up the topic, is that I, I think price manipulation essentially is happening nearly every single sale in the NFT market. And I think the people ultimately who will get wrecked and who will lose their shirts are the people who are basing their decisions solely on the price action on, of NFTs. In a sense, I think it's, you know, because the price manipulation occurs so frequently and so so often in the NFT market and so transparent to a certain extent, is that ultimately the the people that the collectors that will sort of survive and thrive and the artists that will survive and thrive are the people that still use sort of non-price action as a fundamental driving force behind you know the collections essentially because you know when price is so manipulated on a sale to sale on a short term basis you know the fallback is to have fundamental conviction on what what it is that you're buying so that you have a conviction that in the long term through all these cycles that that whatever you're buying will will appreciate and i think the people that will get absolutely wrecked are the people who are sort of trading nfts on a short-term basis because you know when you're trading nfts on a short-term basis you are you know subject to these market vagaries to a much bigger extent and unless you're sort of the top market manipulator it's just very easy to be left holding the bag so to speak Mm-hmm. So that's another great episode. Thanks, Kizu, for joining us. Thanks, Abertus. See you next time. See you next time.